Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So I was thinking this last week, and my mind went back to one of the sweetest friendship memories in my entire life. It was about 10 years ago. Uh, I was sitting in a friend's home. His name is Mike uh, in Colorado. And uh, we had done a lot together and knew each other really well. But we knew we were both going through transitions in both jobs and what we were doing. And, and then we were going to be also uh, in different regions of the country. We weren't going to be able to see each other as much. And so we were just talking about that and how much we were going to miss each other. And Mike, Mike did something that is one of the most meaningful things that I've ever had a friend do. He went to his closet. He pulled out of his closet this this beautiful hand-carved wooden chess set that he got on one of his favorite mission trips overseas. His name was engraved upon it. And he handed this to me and said, Ross, I want you to have this. I want you to see my name. And I want you to know every time you see my name that I am for you, that I'm your friend. I'll be in your corner no matter what goes on. Sorry. Gosh, I did this first service too. I can't share that moment without that. And I, I told him some of the same things to him as well. We're in the series called Full Life and a Full Heart, where we want to live life to the fullest. We want to have plenty of memories like that moment with Mike, where we look back at the end of our life and we go, we've lived life well, and our hearts are full. And we would be remiss in this, in this series talking about David's life if we didn't spend some time talking about David and the idea of friendship. David is this man who throughout his life, and in particular the story we're going to look at today, but throughout his life, his life was so rich with deep friendships that allowed him to live life fully and be so successful in life. Uh, It's a huge topic today, and it's a huge point of discussion and study in our culture today because there are clear signs in our culture today that we are struggling more and more with face-to-face relationships. We've talked about that in the past some. We've talked about studies that talked about the fact that 25 years ago, the average person had six friends, and now today they have two friends and the decline in that. But uh, we've also talked about how some of that problem relates to technology in our life, and in particular, our phones. I mean, our phones, they're always with us, right? We do everything on them. And when we, when, we, when we, God forbid, forget them, we walk around feeling like we forgot something, like we're almost naked without them, Right? We text on them, we email on them, we post, we navigate, we order almost anything on them, and then we play a game while we're eating our app-ordered takeout meal, right? Research suggests even that up to 80% of us, I'm not going to ask for raising hands, sleep with our phones, right? But there's one thing we do less and less. Anybody know what that is? Talk on them. One of the fastest growing phobias in America is called various names. One of the most popular names is telephobia. It's a social anxiety disorder that they actually diagnose now. And there are various various reasons people don't talk on their phone. Some people nowadays feel like calling someone before texting them is an actual imposition of our needs over their needs and a rude for us to do that, right? 
while others, uh, every phone call they get is going to go to voicemail. We click the button, it goes to voicemail, and we decide later at our convenience to respond with text. Why? It's because texting and emailing allow us more control, and we're, we, we don't like the lack of control that live interaction has. We don't like the uncomfortableness, the vulnerability that having to respond in the moment makes us face. So we'd prefer to text, right? But it isn't just a smartphone era problem. In his book, Bowling Alone, which was published in ancient history back in the year 2000, Robert Putnam, the former dean and current uh, professor of public policy at Harvard's Kennedy's School of Government, uh, drew on evidence of including nearly, up to nearly 500,000 interviews over the last quarter of century before he published this all the way back in 2000. And, and, it, and his research showed that today we sign fewer and fewer petitions than we used to. We join fewer organizations that meet regularly. We know our neighbors less. We meet with our friends less frequently. In fact, we even socialize with our families less often than we used to. And the name of his book came from this because he said, we even bowl alone. We even bowl alone. More Americans at the time he wrote the book, he said, we're actually bowling than ever before, but they're not bowling in leagues. They're bowling alone instead. And Putnam in his book shows how changes in our work, our family structure, our age, our suburban life, our TVs, computers, women's roles, and other factors have contributed to this decline, this decline of face to face meaningful interactions and the resulting decline in deep, healthy friendships. We're facing this loss of intimacy in our lives, and yet we still have this strong desire for that kind of friendship. Thus, we have businesses emerging like the business called Snuggle Buddies, now in 30 states. When I hear the Snuggle Buddies, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, it makes me think of a toddler TV show, kind of like uh, Teletubbies or something equally insulting to the intelligence, right? But Snuggle Buddies is a real business where you pay a buck to a buck thirty-three a minute to someone to snuggle and talk with you in a non-sexual way. The point is we as Americans are increasingly not getting the depth of friendship and intimacy that we need with friends and family. And so more and more people are beginning to try to find ways to pay to get that need met. So back in January, we started talking about uh, relationships, and we're going to talk about it again today. We did two messages back then. And the first message we did in that talked about the Scripture's definition of a friend and what kind of a friend group we might want to cultivate in our lives, right? And then we did a second message, and we talked more about the barriers that we face to friendship, how shame and other barriers tend to get in the way. So if you want to go back and listen to those, that's great. But today we're going to go in a different direction. We're going to talk very personally and practically, learning life and leadership lessons that help us define what it looks like for me to be a good friend and what we can look for in someone else and discern in someone else who is going to be a good friend to us. And what we're going to discover along the way is that God is the epitome of the kind of friend we want to be and we want to have in our life. Our focus today is going to be 1 Samuel 20. It's one of the most famous stories of friendship between Saul's son, Jonathan, and David. 
It's kind of a long passage, so I'm going to summarize it while reading portions of it. So where the story picks up, it's right after defeating Goliath, David and Jonathan become fast friends, and David is quickly promoted to become a well-loved and successful general under Saul. And time to time, he still plays music for King Saul to, to soothe him when he's agitated like he used to do. But now David is also married to one of Saul's daughters. But with David's success... As Jeremy pointed out last week, Saul's insecurity was provoked. We see in chapter 19, Saul asking all of his attendants and Jonathan, his son, to help him kill David. So Jonathan warns David and instructs him to go into hiding, which he does. And then Jonathan goes back and intervenes over a period of time and talks his father out of harming David and gets his father to swear by an oath, a promise that he will do no harm to David. So by the time we get to chapter 20, the the scene is set and and, and we're facing this big multiple-day festival in the life of Israel. And David secretly makes his way back to to, to Gibeah. It's the town where Saul is at. And he gets in touch with Jonathan. And Jonathan comes to David. And David asks him, beginning in verse 1, this. He says, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? But see, Jonathan in this moment is still believing his dad's word to him not to harm David. So he says, no, that can't be. My father would never do such a thing without letting me know what he was going to do first because he lets me know everything he does before he does it. And David in strong, firm language says back to Jonathan, he says, your father knows that you love me, so he's keeping it from you. This is such a hard place for Jonathan to be in, isn't it? Trusting his dad's word or trusting David's word. Tough place, isn't it? But the more immediate problem for David is this. As a general and the son-in-law to the king, he's actually supposed to be in the king's palace that evening for the first night of the festival in his honored seat. So David and Jonathan come up with a plan how Jonathan can make an excuse for David not being there. And within that context, we also see David and Jonathan reaffirming their friendship and their commitment to one another. The text goes on in verse 12 and says this. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed to you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as He loved himself. So the story goes on, and David misses dinner that night, and Saul notices, but he doesn't think too much about it. He figures David's got a good reason. The second night of the festival comes, and David's still not there, and Saul asks his son Jonathan why David isn't there, and Jonathan gives them the prearranged, agreed-upon excuse that 
David and he came up with. And the text goes on from there, and it says in verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, remember he's speaking to his son, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew, kind of no-brainer in that moment, right, that his father intended to kill him. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. And on the second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Can you imagine this moment? It's hard to imagine all the emotion and the thought going on in this space of time. Part of David and Jonathan's plan was that Jonathan would, the next morning after this, go to this prearranged place and do this signal while David was in hiding so David would know whether the answer was favorable or not. And Jonathan does that. And after Jonathan sends the message letting him know that it's not safe, he sends his attendant back to the palace, leaving he and David alone. And David comes out of hiding, and the text goes on to say this. It says, And David bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground, and they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. And other than a brief instance where they saw each other in the future, this was a forever goodbye moment between fast friends. Wouldn't you love to have a friend that would walk with you so faithfully through such difficult times in such a self-sacrificial manner, not driven by their own ego and desires, but willing to lay their life down in every way, in position, in reputation, in family, in political expectations, even to lay down their very life for you. Allow me to illustrate from this passage what it takes to be that kind of a friend and what we need to look for to cultivate that kind of friendship with other people. We're going to examine two qualities. I'm sure there's more, but we're going to look at just two top qualities here. The first quality of friendship, this kind of friendship, is common vision. Now, some of you probably expected me to say great friendships begin with common interests. Because when I talk to a lot of people about friendship, more often than not, our friends are primarily picked by who it is easy to talk with and have fun with, by our common interests. Common interests are typically our forms of recreation, like if you're into sports, you find friends who are into sports. If you're into art, you find friends who are into art. If you play games, you find people who play similar types of games. Gardeners like gardeners, bookworms like bookworms, hunters like hunters, and so on and so forth, right? Common interests have value, don't they? Especially when they're attached to common vision, it makes friendships so much easier. But the problem for many of us is in friendship, 
All we have are friends with common interests. And the result is our friendships don't go very deep. They stay largely surface and fun. See, common vision is the most powerful bond that friendship can ever have. But we often don't look for that bond first in other people. Think about that for a moment. Think about the power of common vision for just a moment. Common vision brought the U.S., the U.K., and Russia together in World War II. Common vision brought Shaq and Kobe together, at least for a while, to win three national championships and play in a fourth, right? Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman, if you remember how the bad boy Rodman, who likes to go to North Korea now, brought them together for a while. Now, now there are limits. None of those people became fast friends. I recognize that. The point, though, is common vision is powerful enough to bridge tremendous gaps that are often perceived by others as deal-breakers in a relationship. How much more is powerful vision, powerful common vision, uh, have the ability to make powerful, deep friendship in that context? The strength of your friendship is determined by the strength of that which unites your friendship. In David and Jonathan, we see powerful common vision coming together to serve God, his prophesied will over Israel and over David and over Jonathan. You hear it in everything they say, swearing to one another by who? By God. Speaking of the prophetic destiny God has spoken over David to be king, it's what brings them together. So powerful is this commitment to God and God's will for each other that Jonathan is willing to serve David by protecting him in that vision even though he knows it will cost him his rightful place as heir to the throne and it could even cost him his life. Again, the question is, who in your life is a friend that believes in God's calling and gifts on your life like that? Who are the people in your life with similar passion and focus and vision? The best friends I've ever had in life have not always had many common interests in common with me. In fact, the two closest friends I've had didn't have many interests in common. The thing that drew us together was common vision for serving God, for serving His purposes, and for making a difference in people's lives in a very practical way. Common vision. Who are the people who share common vision with you and believe in the gifts and the calling of God in your life. Those are the people you want to cultivate the closest friendships with. Now, the second quality of friendship, of deep friendship, is trust. And we're going to spend a little more time here. And I realize that some of you, when I say that, might be saying, well, trust, that's so obvious, right? I mean, we all know trust is just got to be there, right? But yeah, if trust is so obvious and present in friendships then we wouldn't need most of the counseling that goes on formally or informally in our lives. There would never be gossip. There would never be people going behind our backs. There would never be people who are indirect in communication with us. There would never be something that we call office politics going on if trust weren't a very big deal, a big problem that we all face on a regular basis in our relationships. It wouldn't be a major focus in even the publishing of business leadership books. See, this short account of David and Jonathan, I think, illustrates three really important 
bedrocks of trust that we may not always fully pay attention to. The first foundation stone of trust is this. It's it's a vulnerability. And, And within that vulnerability, it's the desire to be accountable in the deepest parts of your being. See, there can be no intimacy in relationship without vulnerability and being honest about how we feel, about our fears, about our needs, and asking even for those needs to be met and being open and real with other people. Vulnerability is about letting other people know who you really are, even if you're terrified about what people might think and do. But vulnerability is not just sharing. It's sharing with the intent of being accountable to the other person, to growth, to good character, to living out what you believe God has called you to do. See, notice what David leads with in this interaction with Jonathan. He says this in verse 1, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Now, some of us read that and we just think David's complaining saying it more in this tone. What's my crime? How have I wronged your father? Because I know I haven't, and you know I haven't. But that's not who David is, and that's not what's going on here. These are heartfelt questions by David. David's life is so helpful to study, as Jeremy highlighted last week, because we not only get to see his historical writings, but we get to see his very personal thoughts in his journals, his prayers, his songs that he wrote. Uh, It was recorded in the Psalms. David is one of the most vulnerable and accountable people you can ever observe in all of life. And in that vulnerability, you often hear David asking God, like we read a few weeks ago in Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. He's he's inviting God to look at the most anxious portions of him. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, David cultivated as a person and as a leader, being vulnerable and open to correction even publicly, because remember, most of his psalms were written and, and read publicly or sung publicly in worship. That's not easy, is it? But think about this interaction with Jonathan. David knows he's challenging a son's strongly held view of his dad. I mean, John with, uh, Jonathan, with exclamation in his voice, says, Never would my father do such a thing. See, the picture David is painting of Jonathan's father is beyond Jonathan's comprehension. It's even offensive for him to think about. And Jonathan's view of his dad is revealed even more when when he goes on to tell David, he says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now, if I'm David, I'm thinking, sheesh, I hope God is with me more than Saul. I mean, because God has abandoned Saul. I mean, even the prophet told Saul that God was going to abandon him. And Saul's behavior and the problems of his rule demonstrate that God has indeed left him to his own folly. I hope he's with me more than he is than that. But see, Jonathan still sees his dad differently. He has a different perspective. Can you imagine telling your friend who loved and highly regarded their dad that their dad was evil and trying to kill you? 
How do you think that conversation is going to go? Well, see, both David and Jonathan's response in this moment demonstrate vulnerability as the foundation of trust. There's this deep honesty with one's fears and failures and deep honesty with one's perspectives on how they see the world. But there's also an accountability to move past those perspectives, to test those perspectives and those fears and those failures and move past them. See, for each of them, the ability to be vulnerable instead of, instead of needing to hide is based in their view of God. David put it best in worship songs. He wrote like Psalm 103 where David says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust, that we are weak, that we struggle. See, when we know how compassionate and forgiving God is, that he knows all of our warts, our failures, our sin, and and our weaknesses, and yet he is still on your side, it takes away the need to self-protect and makes being vulnerable safe. And it leads us to deep friendships. Let's think about this a little more thoroughly, a little bit more practically. Isn't it true in your experience, that you can have lots of friends you have fun with. But the friends you trust the most are the ones you've shared openly with about a weakness or a sin in your life. See, you don't really trust someone until they drop their persona and they're real with you. You don't really trust someone until you drop your persona and you're real with them sharing a fear, a weakness, or a sin, and you see how that person handles your vulnerability well. Pastor and author Craig Rochelle put it this way. He said, we may impress people with our strengths, but we connect with people through our weaknesses because that's where the grace And love of God is most profound. The second foundation stone of trust in the passage is loyalty. And within what we just said, notice the depth of loyalty. Jonathan is loyal enough to trust David's perception and take it seriously, even if he can't quite see it, can't quite agree with it. He's going to test it and he's going to be honestly open to believing it. He's loyal enough to David to do that, even though it strikes painfully at the core of his family identity and his personal identity. And David is loyal enough to Jonathan to care for and respect Jonathan, even though it's his dad who's against him. Their loyalty to each other is so great. Not, not, not because just because they like each other. It's not just because the other is such a good person or a perfect person. No, their loyalty to each other is grounded in God and His plan for each of them. They're loyal to the vision God has 
for the other person. See, if our loyalty to other people is based upon the person, we will always be fickle in our loyalty. But if our loyalty is based upon who God has made our friend to be, no matter how far they are away from that ideal, we have a solid basis for loyalty in that friendship. There's the third foundation stone of trust, and it's a word that we're going to talk about, covenant. This word covenant. We think of a covenant today within marriage, like wedding vows, okay? But we often don't think of it in regard to friendship. When's the last time you had a conversation, maybe like I did with Mike, where your friend affirmed the covenant commitment to you and you to them? See, in this text, this kind of covenant conversation was common for David and Jonathan. They'd done it before. Verse 17, look at it again. And Jonathan had David, what? Reaffirm his oath, his covenant out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Now, there's a thought in here that I I just want to tease you with because some of you are going to go home and think about this and you're going to get a lot out of this, but I don't have time to develop it today. So I'm just going to give it to you in the next couple minutes. I think it's really fascinating and important in this passage when it says that Jonathan, out of his love, had David reaffirm his oath. It was because Jonathan loved David that Jonathan asked David to reaffirm his oath and his covenant. Think about that. I think there's something powerful in friendship there. Now let's move on from that. Certainly we know trust is built on making commitments and keeping commitments, and that's part of what's going on here in reaffirming the covenant between Jonathan and David. In times when our friendships are being challenged, it's really important that we reaffirm explicitly our commitments to one another. One good way of showing that is, is kind of this communication technique that's taught for people going through conflict and, and, and especially when you're resolving conflict. And it's this, to clarify your wants for the relationship. And you do that in three ways. You clarify what you want for the other person. You clarify what you want for yourself. And you clarify what you want for the relationship. So let's just imagine we heard this whole conversation with, with Jonathan and David. If Jonathan had done this to David, it might have looked like this. He might have said to David, I want you to achieve all God has for you to do, including being king one day. But David, I want for me to be the person who is by your side serving you faithfully as your most loyal friend and advisor And David, I want for our relationship to be strong and secure, whether my dad is evil or good. What are your commitments to your friends around you? What do you want for those relationships to be like? Try expressing your wants the next time you're in a difficult conversation and see how much better that conversation might go. But again, here's the key. This is not just words between friends. The covenant in this instance is one made between David, Jonathan, and God. That was what covenants were in that day. And the greater party in this is God. The covenant is an expression of how David and Jonathan are going to be like God and his love for them to each other in love and grace and actions and attitudes and commitments. God is gracious to them so they will be gracious to each other. 
God has called both of them to leadership. So they will be committed to protecting and empowering the leadership of the other person just as God is committed to that in their lives. Trust, it's built on vulnerable accountability, on loyalty, and on covenant. But while I've already alluded to this, I want to make something very, very explicit just for a second here in this moment. How we view God affects everything about how we approach friendship. If we view God as angry and demanding, the one who's out to punish us, the one who is always disappointed in me because of my weakness and my sin, then we will find it extremely difficult to ever be vulnerable and we'll only be loyal as long as we're not, it doesn't threaten our self-image. So if someone comes to you like David does and says, there's evil in your family tree, you will not be able to hear it because it threatens how good you think you are. And if you think God is impatient and angry and disappointed and, 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 and wanting to punish you, your covenant commitments will communicate almost this harsh, demanding, legalistic standoff. It's just, just the kind of the just try to earn my trust kind of a tone in the way you relate to other people. But if we see God as loving and pa- compassionate and forgiving, as a God who knows how weak we really are and loves us so much, even in our weakness, then we don't have to hide because we're forgiven. So there's no need for fear of punishment, only freedom and peace and joy to be gained by being vulnerable and accountable. Loyalty becomes then an act of gratefulness and covenant. It's easy to do because we are so secure in the covenant and love that Jesus has for us. And Jesus invites us into common vision and trust, the foundations of deep friendship. But Jonathan and David had such, powerful, had such a powerful friendship, but their friendship points to a much greater friendship that we find in God through Jesus. Jesus is the better friend who sticks closer than a brother the only friend you will ever have who will never leave you or forsake you, even though you deserve both. We deserve by our actions so often to be left and forsaken, but God will never do it. We serve a God who we can trust because he came to us in Jesus vulnerably. Jesus demonstrated loyalty to us by dying for us and taking the penalty for our sin. He created a covenant promise with us that is absolutely sure that one day we will be fully redeemed and everything in the cosmos will be set right. And Jesus invites us into a common vision with him, bringing that same kind of love to the world around us. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. He is the friend in John 15 who laid down his life for us as his friends. He's the one who calls us friends and he invites us into friendship with him. Worship team, go ahead, come on up. Within that, he wants all of us as followers to grow in having the same kind of love, that same kind of deep friendship with one another so as to lead us our lives to this place where we live life with a full life and a full heart. As we close today, we're going to celebrate communion. Uh, If the people who are serving could come now, I'd appreciate that. Communion is the covenant 
It's the symbol of the covenant that Jesus has established with us. So as we come today to receive communion, we reaffirm our covenant with God. Luke 22, when Jesus first established covenant, he said, and he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Unless we think that's just for the people he's talking to, in that same stream of conversation that evening, a little bit later, Jesus prays, declaring that same covenant love to all generations of people who will follow him. And that means that covenant is for you and me. So as you come, as we continue to worship, Renew your covenant of friendship with God and renew your covenant commitment to love people like he loves you, to go deep in your friendships. Renew your commitment to be safe in his forgiveness so that you can be vulnerable and real and you can really deeply connect with other people so that they can experience the same grace you've experienced. If you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, but you want to be a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to come and receive communion as your act of choosing to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that your spirit would just continue to minister, that you would come right now. And Lord, I just sense there's some areas where some of us have been afraid to be vulnerable. We've hidden things because we're afraid of what other people think, and yet those things that we're hiding are damaging us, and we know it. They're controlling us in ways that we don't want to be controlled by them, and we know it. Lord, I pray your Spirit would come specifically to those people right now who are here. We've all been there at some time. We've all done that at some time, but I pray that you'd come specifically to those people right now, and as they take communion, that you would reaffirm the safety that they have to be vulnerable and the healing that you want to bring to them in this moment. Holy Spirit, just come as we worship in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.